0: This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Mike Ross is a retired pastor with almost 40 years experience pastoring churches in the PCA. This sermon was originally recorded in June 2014 at the PCA General Assembly in Houston, Texas. Let's listen to Mike Ross's message on preaching holiness without falling into legalism.
1: So I have the, uh, the privilege to talk to you today about preaching holiness without falling into legalism, which is no easy topic. And um, I prepared this several weeks ago, and I, I told Jane, she said, do you feel good about your, your talk? And I said, no, I really don't, because I, I just don't know how to talk about this. I don't want to be controversial. One of the things that I, I uh, believe sincerely is that in our denomination, we really don't have a them versus us, or we shouldn't have. We don't have good guys and bad guys, but we have people who are looking at the same challenges and they're coming from different uh, mission fields, different ministries and, and looking at it differently. But then as I was reading through the material in the, in the big um, notebook that they send us, I came to the, um, I came to the report of the odd uh, Interim Committee on the Insider Movement. I don't know if you read that report um, uh, David Garner's committee, and I was really encouraged because uh, in in talking about the inside of movement, everybody uh, aware of what I'm talking about there, how we deal with Muslims?
0: Um,
1: well, you would certainly know about this, wouldn't you, um, there There's an issue about uh, what happens when a Muslim in um, his own context, his own community, his own culture comes to Christ. What does what are the challenges before him, and there were three challenges. Um, these reports, whether it was the majority report or the minority report, mentioned that there were three things that this dear brother in Christ, brand new Christian, had to work through. One was his identity in Christ and how he expressed that, how he understood that, actually. Secondly was um, a lot, there were a lot of issues around holiness. What could he do and not do? Uh, could, could, he, could he go to the mosque and pray? Uh Should he uh, refer to God as Allah? Um, What about honoring his parents? If he was a young man or woman still living at home, uh, fortunately in the Muslim community, not like our community, honoring your mother and father means a great deal. It's a fundamental concept of their culture. And then the third thing was his relationship with the local church. Uh, And quite a lot of discussion about what is a local church. And I would suggest to you that those are the three issues that we're struggling with in our culture. In, in postmodern America, we're struggling with issues of our identity, obviously about what we should and should not do, this whole process of sanctification, and with our understanding, and perhaps even in our age, a redefining of what the church is. So that's uh, how I want to approach this. I guess I could say, and I, I, it would seem really smart, delicate, or impertinent for me to say, well, how you preach holiness without falling into legalism is you just preach the New Testament. You preach the full counsel of God. And in a sense, that's what I'm saying today because if you go back and you think through uh, the New Testament epistles, especially Paul's, you could take everything that Paul writes about and probably without doing much damage um, to the New Testament, you could categorize those into three categories. Um, He spends the first half of his epistles talking about the indicative, about who we are in Christ. He talks about our Justification and our adoption and our union with Christ. In fact, that's I hope you would agree with me, that is the central doctrine of the New Testament. Union with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So everything that happens to us once we come to Christ happens in the wonderful context of these two words that Paul uses over 120 times in his epistles in Christ or in him. That's, that's our identity. Number two, he spends the second half of all of his epistles without fail. And if, as, as I do, you think he's the author of Hebrews, then that, he does the same thing in Hebrews. He talks about the imperative. What we are to do now that we're united to Christ. And those are his put on and put off and do this and don't do that and grow and work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you. And the third thing that undergirds all of his writings is that everything he says about our identity and our living out the Christian life is always done in the context of a local church. Paul never speaks to a Christian outside the context of a local church. In fact, I think if you were um, went down to get a cup of coffee or have lunch at a place downtown in Houston and this guy came in and there was no place to sit at the counter but beside you and you got to talking and you found out his name was Paul and he was a, from Turkey and he was an apostle and you said, well, you know, I've read all your books and uh, I'm a Christian. Pr- pretty early on in the conversation after you found out how you were converted, he'd ask you where you go to church. And if you said, well, um, I'm not yet baptized in a church or I've been baptized but I'm not in a church, Paul would probably in his uh, characteristic straightforward to say well then my friend I don't know what you are but you're not a Christian because you can't be a Christian without being actively involved in local church and I want to suggest this morning that these are three issues that American people struggle with their identity what is good and bad in their life ethical moral we'll call them issues of holiness and their view of the church and because we're struggling with these things our culture and therefore the people come into our churches and our churches are struggling with the whole issue of sanctification. Uh, Again, I want to tell you that I'm I'm not here to, I don't want to cause a controversy. Uh, I can be controversial, but most of the time it is by accident. I can promise you that. (laughs) And um, because I really think that the one thing we need to do is bring the brothers together on this. You know, we're going to have controversy in the Christian life. Paul would call it spiritual warfare. He would say that we're really not struggling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers that are trying to undo uh, what we're trying to do. And the main thing that they want to attack, I think, is our unity. Uh, But we also know that there's controversy because the business that all of us in this room, whether we're in the ruling elder or a teaching elder or women's ministry end of the church, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And the battle of of the mind and the heart, that's always the most fierce battle. And people are going to take it personal because you're wanting to change who they are. Uh, And we'll see that Americans think that no one has the right to do that except themselves. So there is some controversy. My question is, do we really in the PCA have a principal difference about sanctification or, or are these issues about pragmatism and preference? And I'm here, this may be the most controversial thing I say, but it's just an opinion. I think we don't have a principal difference. I think in principle we agree uh, uh, in the PCA about what the Bible and certainly what the Confession of Faith and Catechism say about justification, sanctification, and and the Christian life. I think where we have differences is in practical ways in which we work that out in the context of our ministry because we can be in a great urban center or like I am in an, an affluent suburb we could be in a small town in the South, and we could be out in rural areas of Nebraska or the Midwest, and we think we're dealing with different kinds of people. I hope to convince you by the time we leave that we are not. We are simply not. We're dealing with the same core issues of identity, holiness, and the church, with the same spiritual dysfunction in our people's souls. It just manifests itself in different ways. And sometimes... This is the most uncomplimentary thing I'll say about anybody. Sometimes we mistake our preferences for our principles. We prefer to do something, and that preference gets in the way and becomes, as it's attacked, mainly because of perhaps our insecurity, maybe a little pride, it becomes a principle when it's not. So I really believe uh, the best about people. I think we ought to give people the judgment of charity and the benefit of the doubt. I think we ought to assume the best about people, um, and we ought to assume that uh, we are together on these things rather than apart. Uh, I am part of the GRN. I'm one of the founding uh, partners in that. I affirm all of these affirmations and denials. I think not only are they um, very uh, practical um, and very balanced, but I think they're biblical expressions of what we really believe as Reformed Christians. Um, What I want to do today is just, uh, I'm not going to expound any text. I want to just kind of look at them thematically. Uh, I could pick dozens of texts, but I'm going to pick three that uh, clearly illustrate uh, the points I want to make. And so um, if you've got your Bibles handy, I'd ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the first thing I want to talk about is the American view of God and the self. The American view of God and the self. This is a passage that is in many ways abhorrent to most Americans and to many American Christians because it has five words in it that are unthinkable in the American way of life and in our spiritual DNA. Paul says, beginning in chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from spiritual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. These, This little sentence shocks Americans. You are not your own. And they answer back, Dear sir, if I'm anything, I am my own. Paul in this little passage again goes back to Christ. He says, Don't you know that you are in Christ? In fact, he uses the illustration of sexual immorality really to not only, it's a, it's a double purpose here, not only to point to some problem uh, classic and typical problems in the Corinthian culture. You know, you've studied this, guys, in your exegesis. To act like a Corinthian meant to be a fornicator. To Corinthianize was to be immoral. It was an idiom, a saying among the Greeks. No one was considered more sleazy than the Corinthians. And he said, don't you know this, that you uh, are united to Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And, and if you were united to a prostitute, you'd be one with her. And so you can't be one with a prostitute and one with the Lord. Okay. In fact, it, he, he's really hearkening um, to his, or pointing to another thing he'd say in Ephesians when he's talking about a husband and wife. And he gets to the end of that beautiful passage in Ephesians 5 and he says, Now, uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his husband and wife and cling to his, his spouse and the two become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He's really not speaking about husband and wife. He's speaking about Christ and the church using marriage as the paradigm of that. He's doing the same thing here. We're united. We are married as the bride of Christ, as individuals. We're united to Christ. And therefore, just as this is another place to married people, your body's not your own. He says, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And Americans say that's um, That's wrong. Uh, Postmodern, urban, suburban, small-town, rural Americans believe in the autonomous self. Um, They believe that they own themselves. They believe that that is the fundamental right of American people. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That we are endowed with inalienable rights from God, which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as we intend them, as we interpret them. I mean, that's... Men and women, this is how the the same-sex marriage thing got by the Supreme Court. You're familiar with their argument. Their argument was, our founding uh, civil beliefs and spiritual DNA in this country is that we are endowed with a right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Heterosexual people are able to fulfill their happiness by being married to the person they love. Heterosexual people, homosexual people ought to be allowed the same thing. And, And the court said, you know, that makes sense. We can define ourselves because we belong to ourselves. Problem is that 90% of Americans, over 90%, about 95%, also believe in God. And there's a conflict in their souls. Uh, They're uncomfortable with these two beliefs, the belief in the autonomous self and in God. Christian Smith said it drives them to be moralistic, therapeutic deists, which is not a great thing, but at least, listen, they're moralistic. They believe in right and wrong. They are therapeutic. They believe in the value of, and the dignity of the individual and that people should be self-fulfilled, and that's a biblical principle. And, and they believe in God. They're at least deists. So they're not totally out in left field. But what they're uncomfortable with is this tension between their belief in God, who is great, who made the world, who owns everybody in it, They believe that, and their autonomous self. I want to to commend the book to you. It's not an easy read, but it's a wonderful book. It's been an eye-opener to me. It's written by a guy named Ron Highfield. He's the professor of religion at Pepperdine University. He's written a fascinating book called God, Freedom, and Human Dignity, Embracing a God-Centered Identity in a Me-Centered Culture. Listen to his introductory uh, paragraph as he sets out his thesis. If asked, most people will say that they believe in God. When pressed, they will admit that the deepest desires and hopes of their heart depend upon God for fulfillment. And they may even say that belief in God is very important to them. One might expect that the thought of God would command their full attention and that their hearts would be seeking God above all other things and that their lips would speak continually of God's greatness and grace but everyone knows this is not so. Belief in God rarely translates into passion for God and action in response to Him. When this irony, this contradiction between what we believe and, and what we say manifests itself, how do we explain this? Why doesn't thought about God become a life directed toward God? Many possibilities come to mind, but there was one factor, however, that I believe lies behind all others and outweighs everything. Even though people believe in God, many people have an uneasy feeling about God. If they could put it into words, they might express this way, that they fear that God's existence and activity in some way threatens their freedom and dignity. After all, we have been told from childhood that God fills all space and time knows everything and exercises all power, that God made us, owns us, and rules over all things. To some of our contemporaries, God's all-encompassing will appears to restrict our freedom. And God's ownership and mastery over us threatens and even diminishes our dignity. Our contemporaries tend to ground respect for others, hope for their own fulfillment and fullness, and believe in their own dignity in their self, and in their inward qualities, their ordinary life and their ability to express their self and impress themselves on the larger world around them. They do not connect these human values and aspirations to God. Despite our reluctance to admit it, we are tempted to consider God as a threat to our freedom and dignity. We imagine God to be a sort of superhuman being who is everything that we would like to be but could never be. Despite the difference... We consider God and ourselves very much alike. We are both centers of desire and will, the difference being that God has the power to achieve His own desires and carry out His will always, and we do not. Such a view of God promotes not love, but envy. The Christian picture of humanity enables us to achieve true selfhood, perfect freedom, and the highest dignity conceivable. In Christ we find an identity rooted not in other people's changing thoughts about us, but in God's eternal knowledge of us. Though Through the Spirit, God enables us to achieve a perfect freedom of life in harmony with our truest identity, in a harmonious reconciliation where God is fully and gloriously God and we are fully and gloriously human beings. This is truer than we want to give credit for. If we say to a man who's about to leave his wife, you know, you can't do this. You belong to God and God wants you to stay with your wife. You don't have biblical grounds for divorce. He more than likely will say to you, Pastor, I appreciate that, but I owe it to myself to be happy. You can't marry that person. They're the same sex. You are repressive. You're restricting my freedom. I have the inherent right, the inalienable right to pursue my happiness. And this is how I've determined that I'll be happy. Um, I, I had this happen in the church six months ago. And I've been pre- preaching for 32 years. This, was, this floored me. I was in Proverbs, I was talking about morality and women and their, and, and, and Proverbs. Uh, Solomon's display of how temptuous they could be of men if they weren't and I said you know I found out that in our Christian school some people who don't go to our church but in school they allow their, their 15 16 year old daughters to be bikini models and to go off to California and model uh, and I said you know this is irresponsible on their part. First of all that's immodest secondly they don't know what's happening there and it's dangerous to their judge well what I didn't realize is that a lot of people in the congregation didn't agree with me. And, um, and I was told in, in no uncertain terms by several women, number one, that's legalism on your part. Who said that wearing a bikini was immodest? Well, I thought, I know it's not in the Bible, but I thought we just assumed that, but eh, wrong number one. okay. Number two, um, no one has the right to tell me how to raise my kids. Well, that's number two, okay? Number three, you know what's coming. The church has no business to be stepping into my personal parenting. Three strikes and I was out. Actually, they were out. I lost members over it because I was legalistic, I was mean, and I was insensitive. And I was trying to tell them how to run their life. How dare me? So that's, that's there more than we think. Um, years ago... David Wells wrote a, a book, actually wrote four books. They were a series. No Place, no, um, no place for Truth, God in the Wasteland, um, Losing Our Virtue, and Above All Earthly Powers. They were wonderful. Four of the best books I've read since I've been a pastor. First one was this prolegomena about theology and truth. The second was Theology Proper, God in the Wasteland. The third was about um, anthropology, Man Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover Its Moral Vision. The the fourth was his Christology above all earthly powers. Christ in the postmodern world. The best one of the four was the third one that was the least selling. Losing our virtue, why the church must recover its moral vision. This was in 1999 that David Wells was already saying things that Ron Highfield is saying in the book that he published last year. And he said in that book that we have competing for the American mind and soul. Two different views of spirituality and a person's spirituality will affect their sanctification. One he called the reformed or classical spirituality and that it was derived from the holiness of God being totally other and transcendent and being sovereign to conduct the affairs of his world the way he thinks is best, a life that called us to self-denial and, uh, and self-control and to self-effacement. But another spirituality has now risen the postmodern spirituality that calls us to the opposite. That now man is sovereign over his identity, how he lives his life, and he's been called to self-expression, self-fulfillment, and self-assertion. And these two different views, he says, in the end, ultimately make for two different gods, two different humanities, and two different ways of approaching God and man in what we usually call religion. He said this is so pervasive, he says, that it's actually shaped the way in which we um, we think about human nature. He said in the classical uh, way of thinking about human nature, we thought of virtue. And virtue was seen as objective values that were held over a long period of time, sometimes for centuries. And they were Issues of character, and he said that they were defined by words that were um, different than the words that we use today. But but now, character has been replaced by personality, and virtues by values. Character came from God, personality comes from the culture around us. Listen to what he says. Today we cultivate personality, a word almost unknown before the 20th century, far more than we do character. And this is simply the concomitant way in which values have come to replace the older sense of virtue. The change came exactly at the turn of the century. Until this time, the self had been understood in terms of character, of virtue, to be learned and practiced of private desires to be denied. The words that most commonly have been used to describe character were these. Citizenship, duty, democracy, work, building, golden deeds, outdoor life, conquest, honor, reputation, morals, manners, integrity, and above all, the word manhood, from which we get the English word virtue, from vir, V-I-R which means masculine or man in Latin. These virtues were all sustained by beliefs in a higher moral law, a belief that rapidly began to sag and disintegrate. Around 1890, the focus abruptly shifted from character to personality. What happened in 1890? Well, a guy named Sigmund Freud arrived from Europe and began to introduce psychology. The adjectives most commonly used to describe personality became fascinating, stunning, attractive, magnetic, glowing, masterful, creative, dominant, forceful. All the words you would use of Mike Ross. None of these words could be easily used to describe someone's character. Character is not stunning, fascinating, or creative. Character is good or bad, while personality is attractive, forceful, or magnetic. Attention, therefore, was shifting from the moral virtues which need to be cultivated to the image that needs to be shaped. It was a shift away from the invisible moral intentions toward the attempt to, to make ourselves appealing to other peoples, away from what we actually are to refining how we are perceived by others. The self-sacrifice of the older understanding gave way to the self-realization of the new, and now it became important to find oneself to stand out in the crowd, to be unique, to be confident, and to be able to project oneself because that was your duty. Along with that, he said, heroes were replaced by personalities. Prior prior to the 20th century, how many celebrity pastors were there in America? They are a dime a dozen now. He said the difference between a hero was that a hero was someone who earned that over his life and usually didn't become a hero until he was dead. But a celebrity purchases that and, and, and is granted to him while he's still alive by those who like him. He said all this fit together to change the way we saw God in relationship to ourself, our limitations as human beings, and the right to shape our future, both personally and corporately. Um, The language began to shift. Gerhard Ford, in a little book called On Being a Theologian of the Cross, said that uh, in in Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, his great defense of his evangelical faith, he had a number of theses. Number 21 was this. "A A theology of glory calls good evil and evil good. A theology of the cross calls a thing for what it really is. And therefore, a theologian of the cross is one who says what a thing is. But as the image of the self changes and the needs of the self are perceived to be different, the language changes. One more long quote and that'll be done. Gerhard Ford said, it is evident that there is a serious erosion in the slippage and language of theology today. Sentimentality leads to a shift of focus And language slips out of place. To take a common example, we apparently are no longer sinners, but rather a nation of victims, oppressed by sinister victimizers, whom we are relentlessly seeking to track down and blame. Of course, there are indeed victims, and there are victimizers in our culture, all too many of them. But the kind of collective paranoia that allows us to become preoccupied with such a picture of our plight cannot help but nudge the language just enough to cause it to slip out and fall out of place. The slippage is often very slight at first and subtle and hardly noticeable. That is what makes it so deceptive. We no longer live in a guilt culture that has been thrown in... We now live in a a world that has been thrown into meaningless and, and, and no one is responsible for meaninglessness. It just happens. Since we are victims... We are not really sinners. What we need is affirmation and support and not sanctification. The language slips and falls out of place and it becomes therapeutic rather than evangelical. It must be trimmed more and more so as to not give any offense or cause guilt. When we operate on the assumption that our language must constantly be trimmed so as to not give offense, to stroke the psyche rather than to place it under attack, It will, of course, gradually decline to the level of a greeting card sentimentality. The language of sin, law, accusation, repentance, judgment, wrath, punishment, perishing, death, devil, damnation, and even the cross itself, virtually one half of our gospel vocabulary simply disappears. It has lost its theological legitimacy and therefore its validity as a legitimate form of communication. Now, folks, I'm not trying to bore you. Forgive me if I am. And I'm not trying to impress you with these books I've read. I'm simply saying this is a more fundamental problem than we realize. When we tell a homosexual he can't live that way. And he won't say, well, I'm a homosexual Christian. And we say, you can't define yourself that way. We're speaking past each other. He he is not understanding what we're saying. What we're saying is oppressive. It's restrictive, it's mean, it's legalistic. It is uh, against his civil rights. No one can tell him what to do. It's what makes him happy. And this isn't just happening, folks, in places like New York City. It's happening in its rawest form in our large metropolitan areas where we are uh, uh, faced with millions of individuals living highly individualistic lives and liking the anonymity of a large city and it's lack of accountability, but it's got its, its white bread middle-class, suburban, materialistic form in Matthews, North Carolina, where I live. If you don't believe me, go talk to them about bikinis. It's happening in the small towns of the South, where you get the answer um, for why people do and don't do things, not from the Bible, but from, well, we just don't do things like that around here. And it happens even in the rural communities of the Midwest where they celebrate the rugged individual okay, who picks and chooses what he's going to believe about the Bible. But he's still got that pioneer blood and nobody's going to tell him what to do. We've seen pastors come and go, son. But we're as old as the land around here, which is a veiled threat. Don't tell me what I need to be. What cuts across this all is the doctrine of Imago Dei. That, that is, Tim Keller's right, that doctrine, along with common grace, give us a platform in which to talk to anybody, a Muslim, an urban cynic, um, a suburban nominalist Christian, and, and a fundamentalist out in the play. It gives us the ground to say, let, let's talk about who we are as God made us because the majority of Americans still believe that God made them and they share there's some of the DNA of Genesis 1 still left in the American psyche don't tell me how it's there but it is and so when we press people towards a God-centered identity do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God you are not your own You're not your own because you didn't make yourself, and you're not your own because you didn't die for your own sins. You doubly are owned by God. Then we, we bring them to a point where we can begin finally to talk about things. David Wells says this is an egalitarianism that we want. He says, In the life of the church, the value that we have as bearers of God's image has been an easy thing to profess but a very hard thing to implement. Every society has its own way of assessing who is important and who is not, who has value and who does not have value. Just look at James 2. To the extent that the Christian and and the church believes the biblical testimony, to that extent it is committed to an egalitarianism that has to be defended in every culture. On the grounds of creation, the church has to say that no human being is intrinsically less valuable than another. And on the grounds of the doctrine of sin... It also has to declare that regardless of personal piety or moral development, or from that matter, how depraved a lifestyle someone may have maintained, no person stands closer to or farther from God. God then becomes the one who defines who we are and puts the parameters of salvation in place. We are equal in our value and equality and equal in our ruined lives. That is the kind of egalitarianism that the gospel commits the church to. I'm not preaching egalitarian view of marriage. I'm preaching a view that all men are created equal before God. Equally valuable. Equally damned. And it's God who's going to say this is what you are and this is what you need to be. And the difference between what you are and what you need to be only I and my son can get you there. You are not your own. In fact, the reason you're a wreck is because you have been your own for too long.
0: Across the globe, MTW sends missionaries that are committed to the establishment, growth, and maturity of the church. But the global church can't grow and mature without leaders, and the nations desperately need more of them. Over the last five years, thousands of refugees have fled conflict and resettled in Germany. Though many are Muslim, they are open to the gospel. They need pastors. In Africa, a generation of young people are misled by the health and wealth gospel. They need shepherds. In Belize, the Presbyterian denomination has 16 churches, but only six pastors. They need leaders. To establish, grow, and revitalize churches, MTW needs trained leaders with seminary degrees and ministry experience. PCA Pastor, we're talking to you. Maybe God is calling you to serve a church in the United States, and that's good. But maybe He's calling you to a global need. Forty nations we serve are asking for leaders. Are you one? Join us. Visit mtw.org to learn more.
1: And I think sometimes when we're we're talking about the sanctification thing here in P.J., we jump right into the ordo salutis, folks, before we even get to predestination. We've got to talk to people about Genesis 1. That's how the Bible begins. In the image of God, he made them male and female, he created them and gave them dominion and said in chapter 2, now here's the parameters of life. What's the fall of mankind? We don't like that God owns us. And Adam and Eve said, we'll decide to own ourselves. And that's where the problem begins. And so we've got to find that that's a common problem we face, and it's a core issue we have to deal with. Our biblical view of the self. And that impacts the second thing. Second thing we all face is this. Americans naturally resist sanctification. Okay? You say, well, Pastor... Doesn't all mankind... Yes, we do. But, all man, we, but we do it in a unique way. And, and if you want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, I'd like to look at that text. From I'm not going to read it. But here's what happens. Americans resist sanctification because it's hard. Because it's hard. There are other cultures that know how to do hard things because they live hard lives. But we don't anymore. If we were to turn to Hebrews... Um, and we were to look at uh, chapter uh, 11, 12, and 13, which is really, in fact, I'm preaching in Hebrews now, and the whole epistle is driving to these three chapters. I'm probably wrong on this, but I do believe Paul wrote it. So the indicative is chapters 1 to 12, the imperative is 11, 12, and 13. And what he's doing, or whoever the author is, he's expounding on the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Now these three things abide, faith, hope, and love. Faith, Chapter 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Then 25 times he uses the word faith, 19 times he talks about by faith, and he shows how all these people in the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith of the Old Testament, express their faith. He centers it around one motif. Faith is the looking forward to the city of God, to a city who has foundations, is architect and building, and God, God is God God is not ashamed to be called the God because he has prepared for them a city. So this looking for the city of God and moving towards it is the essence of faith. It's not hard to see what he's talking about in chapter 13 either. Let the love of the brethren continue. And then there's 12 exhortations of how we are to love each other in the church. The centerpiece being that here we have no lasting city, but now with Christ we have the city that is to endure. So love is defined as living in the enduring community little book that a couple of our blessed uh, and precious RUF ministers wrote about the church, the enduring community years ago, Brian Habig and, and uh, Les Newsom. So you've got faith as uh, looking to the city of God. You've got love as a living in the enduring community. What's in the middle? Well, he never uses the word hope, but he does talk about not losing heart, and not losing your confidence. And hope in chapter 12 holds the center ground. It's a double-fold hope. It's the hope of holiness rooted in the hope of heaven. He says um, in chapter 12 that these people should fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, uh, so that they will not lose hope. They will not lose confidence. Um, Strive for peace with everyone, he says, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. He tells them to maintain their confidence because they have an unshakable kingdom that is being prepared for them. Tim Keller's right. The hope of the Christian life is in heaven. The hope of heaven is the ground of all of our hope. It's called consistently in Scripture things like our blessed hope, our living hope, in Titus and in 1 Peter and here in Hebrews 12. Our hope of heaven is the... Energy that drives us to a hope of holiness, which we can achieve if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, sanctifier of our faith. So, that middle chapter is about holiness. And he says, You folks have five problems. This is why you're struggling with holiness in Rome, because you're under persecution. You're thinking of renouncing Christ, Hebrews 6, going back to Judaism chapter 6 through uh, 10, okay, forsaking the church. That's the previous paragraph. Do not forsake your assembling together. This is the habit of son. You need to encourage one another to love and good deeds, especially as the day draw near. It. So he says, here are 12 things you need to face. This is where I just want to uh, kind of serve this. First of all, he says, there is a tendency to take our eyes off Jesus Christ and to become weary in the marathon of life. Chapter 12, verse 1. therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Although he doesn't mention this, certainly this would be a legitimate application That when celebrity pastors dislodge Jesus Christ as the focus of attention, our people are going to suffer in their Christ-likeness, which is Paul's word for holiness, that we be like Christ. There's also a subtle uh, challenge here that we need to face, and that is we don't use the language of salvation and sanctification like we should. Hear me out before you throw me out. It's, it's fashionable now today to talk about gospel and grace a lot. People are looking in your sermons for those two buzzwords. How many times you mentioned gospel? How many times you mentioned grace? Those are two biblical words introduced to us by Paul. The euangelion and charis. Okay? But if you really read Paul, and you compare the times... He uses Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of gospel, and Holy Spirit instead of grace. You'll be stunned. What's my point? My point is that we're not helping people when we say things like this. When the gospel gets a hold of you, you won't do that anymore. Number one, that's not true. Number two, they can't Implement that into something practical. Number three, it frustrates them. You can say, when Jesus Christ takes command of you, Amen. you won't do that anymore. I I, listen, I love the gospel as much as you do. But I don't think the gospel ever got a hold of anybody. I believe Jesus Christ does. Yeah. And he never says that when grace enters your life, when grace does its work, you won't do this anymore. Never. Mm-hmm. He says, when the Holy Spirit does these things, Amen. you will change. So some, listen carefully, I'm not just uh, trying to... Yeah, you know, I'm not getting paid by the minute here, okay? In fact, I'm not getting paid at all for this. Um, when we talk about gospel and grace, it, there's a danger that our people will hear that what we're giving them is a philosophy. Those are abstract, impersonal concepts. And therefore, if it's a philosophy, it's something that is transactional with God that they can manage, But if I talk about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, I'm not talking conceptually, I'm talking about persons. And it becomes something interpersonal that is transformative, not transactional. When I talk about God getting a hold of me in Christ and the Holy Spirit living in me and changing me, there's no no deal here. There's no trade-off. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. This is the logical thing that happens. Christ owns me, the Holy Spirit lives in me and makes me what God wants me to be, end this discussion. But when I tell people, or forget to tell people they're not their own, and always talking about gospel and grace, those are uh, concepts or things they can use to shape their life to make them happy. It becomes a transaction. So when this author of Hebrews is talking to people who are about to be put to death by Nero, he says, Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ, not the gospel, not the Holy Spirit. He's mentioned the gospel in chapter 2, okay? but he's talking about the person of the Godhead that we ought to focus on. Number two, not only should we um, focus on Jesus Christ, but there's a great aversion to doing hard things. In our culture, especially in people who are baby boomers and younger, which is the majority of us now. And millennials simply don't do hard things, except for themselves. But he says that sanctification is hard. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your fight against sin. Does he have a reference the point of shedding blood to the cross? He does. Secondarily, his main reference is to the martyrdom that he's talked about in chapter 10 that introduced these chapters. You have not resisted in sanctification to the point where you may be put to death, but you could be. Now, you you talk to a generation of Americans whose number one value is ease and comfort, whether they're 65, baby boomer, or a 15-year-old millennial, and you're singing a different song when you say, no, sanctification is hard. It may include martyrdom. You know, you've heard a lot of stuff and you've read a lot of things, as I have, recently about lost boys. Okay? What are lost boys most afraid of? Failure. That's why they live in their parents' basement and play Xbox and date and have sex and have friends in a virtual world because they control it and there's no chance of failure. I'm here to tell you that where I have failed the most in life is in my sanctification. God knows it has been a battle. Ask my wife. It's hard. It, it includes death to self, carrying the cross, failure, discipline. Uh, you, you, you've been at it as long as I have, folks, and sometimes you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, you know, Am I really a Christian if I continue to do this? Is there something fundamentally wrong with me? Of course the answer, is yeah. But sanctification is not easy. It looks so neat on on paper, but it's difficult, painful, and it's messy. And Americans don't want to fail because we live in a performance-based culture. That's why, quite frankly, we need to preach grace to them. They live in a performance-based culture. It's all about getting the right grades and making the right income and having the right things to show that you're a success, because you need to feel that way. And so failure and sickness and pain and ostracization from other people, all those things are anathema. But those are the things that sanctification calls for, even perhaps the ultimate failure of martyrdom. So Americans don't do hard things. Thirdly, Americans with the breakdown of the American family And with helicopter moms and absent indulgent fathers, they don't accept discipline very well. Well, you know the next thing he talks about in Hebrews. He mentions the discipline of God nine times. If you include the words um, chastise and, 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 and rebuke, 11 references to God's spankings. And he says this is what really proves you're a child of God, is that you're disciplined. Well, When you have a generation that doesn't respect authority and maybe for good reasons because of the meltdown of their parents' marriage or because they were spoiled or because they were never spanked and you say to become a Christian and a good Christian you're going to have to be disciplined they say, "Mm, not me I don't take discipline and he says, well you know the one who's not disciplined is not a son not a child of God that's another obstacle and then you come to the next paragraph, fourthly, he says American, uh, uh, Americans have a cheap view and a passive attitude towards sanctific- sanctifying grace and a commensurate low view of holiness. I want you to look at this passage in the uh, beginning, I think, in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal For you know what afterwards happened. When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought for it with tears. What an awesome paragraph. He says, exhortation number one, do not fail to obtain the grace of God. That's how it reads in the literal Greek. Do not fail to grab hold of the grace of God. Number two, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And there are five exhortations calling them to obedience. Here is grace and obedience and holiness in heaven all put together in one stream of thought in less than 50 words. And that is a unique way, I would say a revolutionary way, even for evangelical Christians to think about sanctification. And we sometimes in our preaching uh, shoot ourselves in the foot. If there's a passage that talks about obedience, And it's hard on our people. It's going to make them feel uncomfortable or guilty or say, am I really a believer? Am I really a son of God, a daughter of the Lord doing this? We tend to rather leave them in that discomfort to hurry up and overshadow it with a message that says, but don't you worry about it. Don't you worry about it now. We're all under grace, which defeats the very purpose. We don't have to do that. I maintain that since the Holy Spirit of God is the author of the Bible and he speaks to inspired prophets and apostles, There's just a perfect balance between obedience and grace, law and gospel, the merits of Christ, and the outworkings of man. There's a perfect balance here. I don't need to correct the Holy Spirit Sunday after Sunday to protect my people from Him. What I need to do is tell them that there is a grace that's been given to us. Do not fail to grab hold of it. It will produce a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And in the process, there are certain things we need to do that are kind of mile markers of this. Be at peace with people, okay? Don't be sexually immoral. These things that give us good gauges, good thermometers of the spiritual health of our souls. And so if our people have a cheap and passive view of grace and a low view of holiness, they're going to get to this paragraph and get stuck and sanctification isn't going to move forward anymore. Last thing he says... The last paragraph is, Americans are worldly people, and so their focus on their life leaves little room for the focus of heaven and its glory, which historically has been the ground of our earthly hope. Tim Keller's right. The apostles are right. Heaven is the basis of our hope. He talks about this unshakable kingdom. He talks about going to a, a not to the mountain of Sinai, but the assembly of the firstborn in heaven and to the souls of righteous men made perfect. He talks about how we're going to get to heaven and we're going to be sinless. We're going to be in this unshakable kingdom. We're going to be in glory. And that should be the thing that's lifted up to our people every week and they're moving towards that city of God. They're longing for that unshakable kingdom. They're wanting to live in that enduring community. But our people are so concerned about the warp and move of everyday life I told my people last week, I said, folks, I love you, but I worry sometimes. That more, that there are a number of you who are more concerned about your kids getting into Chapel Hill than than, than heaven. Because getting a degree of the University of North Carolina is the penultimate blessing. Okay, what's the ultimate? Beating Duke in basketball. <laughs> And heaven and Jesus and everything else is second, third, and fourth. We are worldly people. You know, people ask me on, on, they ask me on the GRN thing, you know, is, is legalism or lawlessness the major problem of America? My answer is, worldliness is our major problem. That's our major problem. We love this world, but this world is passing away in all of its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Finally, very quickly, I've got to get to this in a couple minutes. Uh, I want to take you to Titus for a minute and tell you that our third problem is the Americans' low view of the local church. Uh, I'll take you to this passage because the pastoral epistles talk about the local church. Titus has a wonderful structure about what a local church is. Uh, and he has seven paragraphs. He talks about a common faith. He talks about what uh, Carl Truman calls a churchly piety, a church built around the piety and strength and wisdom and leadership of elders, not young people. Thirdly, a church that is a counterbalancing culture. If the Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, then the Christians will be people of truth, love, and self-control. That's what he says in his epistles Peter uh, to Titus and Timothy. It's one that has a comprehensive view of salvation, what salvation is. It has a Christ-centered view of conversion, the mercy of God, the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the justifying work of Jesus Christ. It calls people to be uh, committed to a life of good works, and it challenges us to develop a people, a congregation that is compassionate. In the very center of this little epistle is a wonderful paragraph in chapter 2. Why don't you just look at this briefly? Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who were zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is a this is a preacher's dream passage. It's It's bracketed by two epiphanies. epiphanaos, used twice here. It means the unveiling. The grace of God has appeared. And we are waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared first in the incarnation. A grace that brings us justification. It's going to appear a second time in the parousia, the second coming which will bring us glorification. And in between, he explains what's between justification, and glorification, which is sanctification. Okay? He mentions four G's. Grace that justifies us. Glory that takes us to heaven, and in between godliness and good works. So he's attacking the issues that we struggle with. He's attacking legalism. The grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all mankind. You don't have to earn your salvation. You couldn't Anyway, The grace of God has appeared giving this to mankind. There's the great antidote to legalism. The work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that Christ is uh, teaching us to deny ungodliness and to live upright, godly lives in this present age and cleansing us from all that is lawless. Now there's the antidote to lawlessness. It is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in us. And what's the antidote to worldliness? It's to focus on the glory yet to come. That there is no true glory in this life. That we have to wait for Jesus Christ to come back to be everything we want to be. Self-fulfilled. Esteemed by others. Full dignity. Something we lost when mom and dad ate some fruit. What we lost was glory. And we won't be happy till we get it back. But we have to get it back the right way. And even the third L, not legalism, Or lawlessness, but lovelessness is dressed here. We should be zealous for good deeds. We should be people who do good. Good to God because we love Him, and good to other people because they are our brothers and sisters in the world. They're the children of God, the image of God. This whole soteriology is wrapped up in this wonderful little paragraph. And it gives us this balance that we need. Not only is this the bracket of Christian life, justification and glorification, It bracketed Jesus' life. He came in grace. He's coming again in glory. And it brackets the whole uh, process of what a Christian is. He comes to faith and is justified in the grace of God. That grace carries him through a life where he learns to overcome legalism and fight against lawlessness and learn how to love. And it pushes him on to glory where he finally becomes what God wanted him to be in the first place. What he was really longing for in his life. Secular and sinful soul. So, this is a a marvelous passage about, but you know, it's interesting that that little paragraph is the centerpiece of Titus, and Titus is all about the church. Here's the third thing we're not telling people, and it's hurting them, it's frustrating them to the point where they're leaving the church. Sanctification is a group project, it's a corporate business. I can never be what God wants me to be without you helping me. And I think the same is true for you. And I don't mean help through gospel reformation networks or together for the gospel or whatever. I'm talking about this glorious, precious thing called the local church. That's where the battles won or lost. That's where they learn by being in a multi-generational community. Read chapter 2 of Titus. In this multi-generational community, they learn who their identity is. They learn about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and who they really are. A family of which we are now part of that family. They learn from older men, older women, and younger men, and younger women, from children and slaves. They learn from everybody how to walk through life together. They learn what it means to have the love of the brothers continue. People confront them about things. They comfort them about things. They pray with them about things. They say, don't you worry about that, Mike. The same thing happened to me. But, but God will get you beyond that. He'll make you the kind of person, and we're going to stick with you till you get through this thing. And if our people have a low view of the church, wherever there's a low view of the church, sanctification wanes, and the gospel becomes impotent. Because as G.I. Packer says, the church of Jesus Christ, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, is part of the gospel. That's why it's vows number four and five of our vows to become church members. We're not adding something to our relationship with God. We acknowledge ourselves to be sinners, that we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we promise that the Holy Spirit's grace will work with it. We also acknowledge that we need to be in the church and we need to submit to its government discipline because that's the only way we're going to get from here to glory. The mother church, like an ark, Peter says, is going to carry us there. So there's three challenges, I think. If we preach through the New Testament, we're going to have to preach a biblical view of human identity. We're going to have to encourage people. They're full of fear. And in this postmodernism, they have no hope. We're going to have to say, no, 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 no. Listen, the reality of heaven and the fact that there are millions of people there whom we've read about in the Bible and in chapter 11, that gives us hope that we will get there too. It is hard. But if we focus on Jesus Christ, if we do hard things, if we accept discipline, if we grab hold of grace, if we keep our eyes fixed on heaven, we're we're going to grow in holiness. We're going to become godly because we'll become like God. Christ-like because we'll become like Christ. Holy because we'll be like the Holy Spirit. And the way we're going to do this is not in our own strength. We're going to stay in the local church and they're going to help us get there. We are not alone in this. We are not our own. We belong to God. We're not our own. We belong to the church. Which happens to be God's bride and in a sense the mother of believers. And if we don't, Talk about our identity and realistic but hopeful expectations of sanctification and the beauty and balance and benefit of the local church, then we're going to continue to debate sanctification and discourage our people and we 're going to get nowhere now that's my humble two cents for what it's worth about how we can preach holiness without becoming legalistic okay um, let any any questions or comments guys yes sir <clears throat> The what? Gerhard Ford. It's Gerhard Ford. F-O-R-D-E. Yeah. It's called On Being a Theologian of the Cross. It's a wonderful little book. Probably uh, late 80s. Published in the late 80s. On Being a Theologian of the Cross. Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, so how does your message on uh, uh, the identity interact with the insider movement? How does the preaching of holiness will interact with use how does my view of holiness interact with my view of a, a Christian identity? No, the inside oh well, I think the honestly, I think the uh, bless their hearts. I think missionaries in the Muslim context are facing this on steroids. But I think what they're what they're having to do is to is take a Muslim background believer, as they call them, an MBB, and say now this your new identity is not. Muslim, your new identity is that you're in Christ. And because you're in Christ, uh, there are certain things that you can and cannot do. It's gonna be hard. They will resist to the point of shedding blood. Many of them will die for it. But the local church, even if it's just a little house church, is there to help you work through that thing, okay? So uh, as you read that report, you're gonna see how important it is that the language not slip in terms of identity, what is holiness, and what a church is, because that's—it's even more critical for them over there than it is for us in our culture. Yeah. Good question. Anything else? Well, thank you for coming. Let me. Let, yes, sir, brother. Oh, uh, Mr. Ross, I, I thought it was You can call very, me Mike. Okay, Mike. I thought it was very. Um, I thought it was very, good, very good that you brought up the. Uh, theory of language in regard to the word values. Mm-hmm. I actually just read something um, Nietzsche had, um, and you might know where I'm going with this, Nietzsche was hell-bent on having a society use that word values. And he said, we need to use the word values, because we need to get away from the old school constraints of virtue, whatever yeah. that is. And he says, we need to call it values. And he knew that that would be palatable mm-hmm. to, to everybody. But his concealed agenda values. Is that values are subjective. Oh, they are, completely. We can, we can take yeah. a, a bag of dog milk and go, well, I value that value. Yeah. you to tell me? I know. So I
0: really appreciate it's that. It's important.
1: That you that up. And See, I, I'll tell you, bro, I have a value. Here's number one value of my life. Ohio State always beats Michigan. That's number one value in life, okay? And everybody should feel that way. If you're an idolater. Then that's, I well, that's an idol- I am an idolater. So, But here's the virtue love your enemies as yourself, okay? Uh, It's easier for me to give in to what I like and call it a value than to do something that's completely foreign to me. And everything that's a virtue is not natural to human beings. Aristotle said all the virtues come from God. None of them are natural to mankind. And Nietzsche hated that idea. And it led to what? Nazism. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What made Nietzsche dangerous is that he understood Christianity pretty well. Yes, he did. Yeah, it's a good point. Well, let me pray. For, I'll uh, stay and talk with you, because I, but I know you got meetings and dinners to go on. Let me pray for us, Father. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this great struggle for the hearts and minds and souls of men. We want to thank you for making us in your image and for purchasing us for yourself. We are really glad that we are not our own, that we belong to Christ and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, We are in this struggle for sanctification ourselves. It's not easy, but we know that nothing worthwhile is easy and that which is eternal will be more difficult than everything else. We want to thank you for our church, for the PCA and for the congregations we worship in and serve without these dear saints, uh, these people of the stained glass, as we call them shining down upon us the church past and the people who live with us now in in the present in the church, we would not be able uh, to be what we are and to become what we should be because your grace is always mediated through them in many ways. Uh, I commend these dear brothers and sisters to your care and to your holy work in their life and to strength and clarity in their ministries. Uh, Give them a good supper and a good evening of refreshment as we worship together now as a body In the general assembly and i ask you all these blessings and favors in jesus name amen Amen.
0: thank you folks you can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the gifts and graces podcast you can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at general assembly they're free and open to the public Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.